What's more contagious than a disease? A good rumor. And sometimes it's just as dangerous. From News at Northeastern, this is Litmus, a conversation with Northeastern University's groundbreaking researchers. We connect what's going on in their labs to what's going on in your life. We're News at Northeastern reporters Emily Arnson and Aria Bracci. And today we're talking about diseases and the dangers of medical myths. But first, let me tell you about the man some call the father of epidemiology. Just assume I don't know anything. Let me tell you about the story of Jon Snow and cholera. In the 1850s in London, Jon Snow discovered that cholera was spreading through contaminated drinking water. Maybe you've heard about the map he made. He says, okay, all of these people on this part of the grid are getting their water from this part of the river, and that part of the river is known to be dirty, and these people are dying, and these people who are not dying get their water from this part of the river, which is not contaminated, and that's why they're not dying. But that's not really how it went. Northeastern professor Sari Alshiller can explain. She just wrote a book about how literature influences science and public health. There's a kind of fantasy embedded in the Jon Snow story. It's a myth, first of all. It's not true for a variety of reasons. That isn't how Jon Snow figured out that that's where cholera was born. Really what happened was Jon Snow had been working for years doing cholera research, already had this hypothesis that cholera was transmitted through contaminated water. And then when this outbreak happened in 1854, he went there with this hypothesis in mind, collected data, and then tested his hypothesis with the information that he collected and then determined that, yes, he was right. Um, so, so if there was a map at all, it didn't actually help him figure it out because he was like already, right? Like he had like a lead. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, now we know how cholera spreads. So I feel like the details like shouldn't, they shouldn't matter, right? Yes and no. The myth misses some super important details. The reason that Jon Snow was able to collect all of this data was because he took into account where individual people lived and like how many people lived in those households and who they were interacting with and where they got their water. Because you said that there were people who were living like not necessarily within the perimeter of people that would get water from X, mm -hmm. but they were sort of breaking the zoning law and like going and getting it from somewhere else and then bringing it. Yeah. Um, right. So people, even if they were far away from the pump, they would walk farther to get to the Broad Street pump just because they liked the taste of the water. Some people would like bring water from the Broad Street pump outside of their district to family members that lived in other parts of London because they were like, this water is so sweet, you'll love it. And then those people would die halfway across the city. People would be like, how is this happening? So he had to do all of this data collection to find that out. It turns out going door to door collecting information isn't just some quaint 19th century practice. Looking at personal data is still really important in epidemiology. And that's exactly what Northeastern professor Alessandro Vespignani is researching. I'm the weatherman of infectious disease. His lab at the Network Science Institute at Northeastern is creating a model that predicts how diseases spread. And to do that, he factors in elements about people's personal lives that epidemiologists have ignored in the past. We live in households. We have children. We go to work. We go to school. And, uh, and we go to shopping mall over the weekend. And all those, those are the contacts over which the disease spread. All of this information affects how diseases spread, which might seem obvious, but for decades, epidemiologists looked at diseases like a simple numbers game. Well, the 
basic assumptions that has been one of the pillar of, uh, of mathematical epidemiology is that we are like in a huge sandbox uh, that is constantly shaking. Everybody is potentially in contact with everybody else. There's this misconception that diseases are somehow egalitarian, like the chances of me getting a disease and spreading it are the same as the chances of you getting a disease and spreading it, and that person getting a disease and spreading it, and that person getting a disease and spreading it, and spreading it, and spreading it, and spreading it. So if society is a sandbox and you shake that sandbox, each grain of sand has the same potential to touch or infect other grains of sand. But Alessandra says that's just not how diseases spread. Okay, I think I'm understanding. So <laughs> it's it's not as easy as saying, like, just because I'm infected, I'll infect two people, and then they'll all infect two people. Like no. You, there's no equation Generally, you know, if we assume that we are all the same statistically, if I, on average, infect two other people, everybody else on average will infect two other people. But when you start to consider how we behave as people, how we move, how we meet, and those details apparently are very important for the way infectious disease spreads. And thanks to the personal tracking devices we carry around with us all the time, Alessandro has access to a lot of data that can give us clues about how we behave and move around and interact with other people. He doesn't have to go door to door like Jon Snow, but the idea is more or less the same. By doing this, he's finding it has so much more to do with the amount of people you specifically come in contact with. And Alessandro is working to prepare people for diseases before they spread, like a weatherman before a storm. When we project the path of a hurricane, you know, you provide the intelligence uh, to prepare people to the worst, uh, and that's the way you save life. Well, with infectious disease forecast, this is what you want to do. You want to tell the healthcare system that the peak of the epidemic will be in a certain period of time, that they have to prepare their hospital for, for a specific uh, infectious disease. So unlike the sandbox theory, the idea that everyone has an equal shot at infecting anyone else, his prediction methods will take personal context into account. That way, he can provide more accurate forecasts. The sandbox theory doesn't allow for that, and it's been that way for years. But it's not the only myth that plagues epidemiology. And Alessandro is very careful not to spread them. There are narratives that get attached to, to, to a disease. But we have to be very careful the the, the narrative we, we pick. In 2009, uh, we were involved with the spreading of H1N1. Uh, yeah, the name was swine flu, although uh, we have all been invited not to use the, the, the swine word because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not the, the, the correct one and seems, you know, well. I'm curious why people don't want to call it swine flu. Because they don't want to blame the pig. No scapegoats, no scape pigs, if you will. You don't want to put stigma on specific things that m might not have anything to do with, with the disease. There are a lot of subtleties in the way you communicate about infectious disease to the public. Semantics are very important when you're talking about diseases. For example, the World Health Organization is always very careful in saying, well, if you call a disease, don't call the disease with the name of the place it's coming from. <laughs> Try to find more neutral and possibly biological names. This has been a more aggressive Ebola outbreak than we've seen in the past. Ebola is actually the name of the river in Democratic Republic of Congo where the disease was found. Zika has spread uh, rapidly. And Zika is the name of the forest in Uganda where the disease was first discovered. 
This geographic blame game is so common, it has its own name, an outbreak narrative. This is Sari again. The outbreak narrative itself is a genre. And that it's a genre that's incredibly xenophobic. It's a genre that's incredibly racist. The plot of contagious diseases is the same. Over and over and over again, we hear in some you know, backwater third world country, um, like a monkey <laughs> bites a child or, you know, something happens and it happens because it's not the first world. And then that disease makes its way through to the first world and threatens our very way of living. And these rumors have real stakes. Like forget pigs, we're talking about entire races of people. So to avoid spreading these stigmas, Alessandra thinks we need to teach scientists how to talk about their work. What do you think makes a good scientific communicator? Well, that you should know better than me. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. To be a good communicator is not something that you are born a good communicator or not. You need to learn to be a good communicator. So I, I believe that you should get training for it. I did a PhD. Uh, I, I did a lot of scientific work, but nobody ever thought to send me and get some formal training in communication. But the blame isn't just on scientists. Alessandro thinks journalists are responsible too in some cases. In some other cases, it's also the people working for uh, the news and the media. They have to be very careful the way they approach uh, disease uh, and the spread of diseases. Uh, we are not talking about, in many cases, of simple uh, news, but something that can generate from, uh, from stigma to panic. We have to make a very big effort in becoming better communicator. The facts are undoubtedly important, but the narratives that surround these facts are also important. Going back to the Jon Snow story, it might not seem like a big deal if we don't have all the facts straight. But the myth is incredibly powerful and people keep telling that story even though they know it's not true. So we could learn, I think, a lot about fields like epidemiology and public health if we actually admitted <laughs> that stories shape the way that we understand those fields. The Jon Snow story tells us that if we can trace a disease on a map, we'll miraculously find out where it started. But the story doesn't tell us that this kind of inductive reasoning rarely checks out. I mean, imagine the risks if someone did this today. If they're wrong, an entire region or an entire race of people could be blamed for a disease simply because of a good rumor about some bad science. But in denying that stories have any power to shape those fields, um, we actually give the stories kind of free reign to operate. And I think that's quite dangerous. Special thanks to Sari Alshuler and Alessandro Vespignani. Sari is Assistant Professor of English, Associate Director of the Northeastern Humanities Center, and the Founding Director of the Health, Humanities, and Society Minor. Alessandro is the Sternberg Family Distinguished Professor of Physics, Computer Sciences, and Health Sciences. He's also the Director of the Network Science Institute. Special thanks to Molly Callahan for helping to report this story. Anthony Polito is our sound engineer, and our editor is David Filipov. From News at Northeastern, this is Litmus. We're News at Northeastern reporters Emily Arnson and Aria Bracci. Talk to you next time. <laughs>